one of the typical fears expressed about the step of baptism is that, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I don't think I could live up to the Christian life. How many times do we hear that kind of excuse? But these excuses actually betray a serious misunderstanding about Jesus' invitation. In the first place, he said very specifically that those who are well don't need a doctor. He didn't come for them, did he? But for those who are ill, because he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to call the righteous like those who seem to have it all together. But those who understand, I fall short. I've messed up. I can't fix myself. If you're in that situation, you're ready for baptism. If you're ready to confess Christ as the answer. It's a call to repentance. Because baptism is such a powerful symbol of repentance. I turn away from the old life that has controlled my direction and my purpose and my self-concept. It's what Paul says with, I'm buried with Jesus Christ, baptized into his death. And I embrace this new life that I'm invited to live in Christ as I'm raised up out of that water. It's to walk in the power that Jesus offers for living in him living according to a different set of values under new management. Management that is actually Christ himself, his cross. So there's a lot to learn there. There's a lot to assimilate that a lot of people never get around to. Um, It's precisely what Paul is saying here when we're baptized into Christ's death so that we can be raised to new life in him. So this is the example that we've just witnessed. It's been dramatized for us by Eva and Sarah and Stephen and Arnold. Aren't you excited for them? And I hope you're praying for them, especially if you are a veteran, entre comillas, a veteran Christian. You know how many struggles are involved here. There's still room on the front row if anybody needs a place to sit. Because I want to share something very important with you. Pay attention, you veteran Christians. Many people never get it. They spend their lives trying to figure out how to make it work. Trying harder to make it work. Looking for solutions beyond the gospel to try to fix themselves to try to feel right about themselves, to try to overcome bad habits or trauma or whatever other brokenness has come to their life. And brokenness comes to all of our lives. We know that. When the answer is actually right there in the cross, just waiting for us to focus on the cross as our center of gravity, Christ himself, the one who is truly adorable, the only one worthy of our worship. We don't automatically know how to let him reign in our lives as king. 
You're not born with that knowledge. You don't suddenly get it just because you take this step. Are you with me? So the Christian life can actually be quite frustrating. <laughs> what? Am I, are my ears deceiving me? <laughs> yeah, because we try to do it ourselves. It can actually be disheartening at times because we fail so much. There's so much fleshliness in us, in us to overcome. So much idolatry yet to be torn down. So many hurts that need healing at a deep level. So much clutter, distraction in our lives that needs cleaning up. You see, when we were children, our gray matter was actually very soft, very tender, very susceptible to being damaged or warped, twisted in the wrong direction, wounded, etc. You got dysfunctional family issues, you've got broken homes, you've got all kinds of unresolved conflicts, you've got unhealthy social influences that are growing daily. You know what I'm talking about. So the minds of children and teens can be stained with trauma, with corruption, with false hopes, with unhealthy addictions, and wiping that slate clean and starting over. That's what Nicodemus found so unbelievable that he said, this sounds like going back to your mother's womb and being born all over again. And he just couldn't imagine it because Jesus had described it that way, hadn't he? As a spiritual Rebirth. Well, maybe we can't wipe the hard disk clean, but Christian faith does involve a total reorientation, a reprogramming of our heart and our mind. It was always intended to be a journey, a pilgrimage, on which we learn obedience through what we suffer. When you hear obedience, think of uh, reorientation, <laughs> a change of direction, obedience, because obedience, you know, at the root means whom you hear. And before I was just listening to me, my flesh, what I wanted, what I thought would make me happy. And following Christ is about, no, no, that's not it. You listen to him. And we don't automatically stop listening to our flesh, do we? Some of you are nodding. <laughs> I hope everybody is getting that part. Because we have so much to unlearn. At least I did. I don't know if I'm abnormal or something, but I had so much to unlearn and reformat along the way. So I want us to examine, with the little bit of time that we have, Paul's and Peter's different ways of expressing what this Christian life is about. So we can grasp these deeper things of God, see the challenge before us. Paul says we're baptized into Christ's death so that we can be raised to new life in Christ. Yet Peter emphasizes that as Jesus suffered by our hands, don't forget, and for our sakes, he was actually leaving us an example to follow so that we might walk in his footsteps. Well, Peter and Paul seem to have very different ways of conceiving what happened. But they are not opposing views. They're totally complementary. So let's look 
at each, what each one said about what Jesus did and what it means. Um, we really need to start with the historical context, but the truth is I don't have time to go into it all. Just to mention that the context is persecution and suffering. And many churches today are remembering the persecuted church and all the suffering that's going on there with one out of every seven Christians today suffering for their faith. So this is what Peter was about, even if I can't go into it because of lack of time. And the structure of the letter is also very relevant as we see that it was about holiness. That's what Peter was exhorting them to, a holy life, because that's the change of chip, the change of direction. This world is not committed to holiness. Oh, is that anything new? <laughs> we already knew that, didn't we? This world is committed to anything except holiness. So can you imagine, in the midst of all of this, Jesus calls us to holiness? Do you realize what bicho raros you're going to be? If you're holy, you're going to be different. We're called to be. The letter, sorry again, can't go into all of this structure for lack of time, but it's about holiness, and within that call to holiness is the call to endure suffering. Because Jesus' sufferings had huge eternal benefits. Yeah, redemption, forgiveness, healing, salvation. That's huge. And his suffering, his willingness to go through all that suffering is what provided it for, for us. Well, that means your suffering is also going to be useful in his hands. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I, I really don't want to suffer. Well, yeah, we know. We don't either. But he said, in this life you will have afflictions. But be of cheer. I have overcome the world. So whom are you going to listen to? It's that simple. The world or to Jesus. So both Paul and Peter insist that Jesus was without sin. In verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, in case you wanted to follow along in this um, exegesis, insists that he committed no sin, no deceit found in his mouth. And Paul emphasizes the same thing. The one who knew no sin had never sinned. That's the one that God made to be the sin offering. Okay? The same way they emphasize that his example was just matchless. It, it deserves our paying attention to how when others insulted him, he didn't insult back. No need for that. When he was when he suffered, he didn't threaten those who were making him suffer. No, he just took it. And he commended his cause to the one who judges justly. It's an example that's worth imitating in every respect. And Paul also points to that example of his humility. Our God was made like one of us. And in that state, he humbled himself. He became obedient in every respect to what his father required. And as a result, he was even obedient to death. And not just any old death, but that wretched death on a cross. That was what an example for us. Worth paying attention to in every respect. Worth imitating. So next, Peter says, 
Well, there it is, the example. <laughs> Sorry, I'm racing to move through this. Mm. The next thing Peter says is that he bore our sins. Well, the first thing we should ask is, uh, how did he bear them? How did he carry them? What does that mean, that he bore them? Well, the first thing we need to indicate is that they were not virtual sins, as we often imagine. They were virtual, floating down from heaven that God was pouring out on him. No, they weren't virtual sins. They were real sins. They hurt. They were painful. They were what the people were doing to him that day. You see, Jesus' mind didn't just go blank, go numb. He didn't turn into a zombie as he was suffering all of that sin that was being cast upon him that day through the trial, through the beatings, through the mocking and the ridicule. No, no, he was totally aware of everything that was happening. Well, what was he doing with it? What do you do when somebody is doing something terrible to you? Do you just stand there and go numb? You react one way or the other, and Jesus' reaction was always forgiveness. Do we get it? Our forgiveness was being enfleshed right there in the person of God's Son. And he was reflecting what God the Father has in his heart toward us. Do we get it? It's very important. So how did he bear that sin? Well, he bore it with patience, with perseverance, with such a generous spirit, with mercy and forgiveness that was reflecting what was in his father's heart. Well, Paul, on the other hand, he doesn't speak of, that, of it the same way. He says Jesus was erasing our sins with his forgiveness. That's how he expressed it. Just like John the Baptist when he spoke of, there's the, there's the Lamb of God who takes away. He takes it away. He removes it, gets rid of it. It was about forgiveness. Paul says that in Colossians 1. Redemption is about forgiveness. That's what it is. That's what it amounts to. Of course, redemption reminds us that in the Old Testament, there was the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer, in order to redeem one of his relatives out of slavery or his property out of being sold away from the family inheritance, would pay. He would make a payment on behalf of that relative. So in the New Testament, Jesus' life is often spoke of as a ransom payment for our sins. The early church fathers understood what was being talked about there, but by the early medieval period, they were beginning to ask, well, well, well whom was the payment made to? Because if you're making a payment, it has to be to somebody. And so some concluded, well, it's a payment made to the devil. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, by the middle and late Middle Ages, the thinkers, Christian thinkers, were beginning to be dissatisfied with that concept. Uh, yeah, he was the prince of this world, but God didn't owe him anything. So that couldn't be right. So they reacted strongly against this notion and came up with another solution that maybe was worse, that the payment was made to the Father. 
He was the one who needed to be paid off to restore his honor. And this idea would be reinforced in the Reformation where they clarified the payment was actually made to satisfy God's law, God's wrath. Expressions still in use today, though I don't believe they really reflect biblical teaching. Galatians 6 says very clearly, God's law is never damaged. It's always operative. What you sow, you reap. No, no, the law is never damaged. It's always functioning. Never needs anybody to compensate for it. It's always working. So maybe a better understanding would be to go back to those early church fathers, the New Testament understanding of this expression as a metaphor that God in the flesh was simply paying the awful consequences of humanity's rebellion, our waywardness. It had consequences for us and for him. He knew what our rebellion would lead to. He knew its implications, both for us and for him. And he knew that when he came personally to us, we would manifest all our rejection and hatred of his authority. We would manifest it in his face, which is exactly what was done to Jesus. All that wretchedness in our hearts poured out on Jesus, and he responded with all the love and forgiveness It's in God's heart. So Peter and Paul next will speak about our response. How do we respond to this? And they say it's about dying to sin and living unto righteousness. That's Peter's expression in verse 24. It's Paul's expression in Romans 6. That's our proper response to Christ's call. In fact, this is the movement of faith by which the Christian life becomes a reality in us. You have to learn to die. And so many Christians never learn to die with Christ. It's not about self-hatred. It's not about self-deprecation. But it only happens as we consciously submit to Jesus calling on him in desperation because we simply can't get it right without him. Have you experienced that? We need to come to that point so that we truly call out to him in desperation to come and rule over us. Teach us how to trust in him and give up control. That is not easy. Most of us are control freaks. We want to keep the reins firmly in our hands and to let go of them say, okay, God, you direct this. I'm turning it over to you. That's not easy. It's very counterintuitive. Do we realize that? That's what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. That's crucifying our old fleshly will. Peter adds something important here about Jesus' wounds, how they bring us healing. He's quoting Isaiah 53 here when he says this, but we really need to explore it to understand it by how would his wounds bring us healing. Back in the Old Testament, there was a law called the lex talionis. At least that's what we call it in Latin. Uh, You know it as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, etc., etc. Yeah. A tip for a tat. Its purpose 
was to restrict compensations for damages to the actual value of the loss. In other words, put limits on revenge. You can only go this far. You lost your eye, you can only take an eye. That's as far as you can take it, okay? Look at Jesus' wounds. Think about Jesus' wounds. Unjustly inflicted on the innocent Lamb of God. There was no reclamation of damages in those wounds. No demand for vengeance or retribution or compensation. No desire for retaliation. He had been hit again and again, humiliated to the floor. He had been wounded utterly. And there was no desire for retaliation. There was only forgiveness. He just let us take it all out on him. Do you see it? That's why you and I can find emotional and spiritual healing for our wounds in him. He takes all the blows with his divine shock absorbers. We have to pay attention to that when we have wounds and hurts and angers that we have not resolved yet. You resolve those at the cross in the wounds of the Savior. It's right there. Take them to him. So Peter and Paul together give us this composite picture of Christian discipleship that's so focused on Jesus as our center of gravity, the healer of our souls. Peter ends this section saying, for you were like straying sheep. You were lost. You would never find your way. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. Shepherd and overseer of our souls. It's an interesting word there. Returned to the shepherd. It actually means to turn around, to turn back, to convert. It's about conversion. Being converted to the one who is the shepherd and overseer of every sheep that returns to the fold. Because he actually rose from the dead, you know. That really happened. It's not just a legend. There's no other logical explanation for the disciples' radical transformation from fearful, trembling cowards to fearless witnesses. There is no other good explanation. So Jesus' invitation is not just to help you survive, but to help you get fully revived. This is about new life, folks. You got to believe it and lean into it and ask him, make it real in me. Following Jesus is not just for you to be able to get by, but for you to get up and be healed and experience wholeness in Christ. You don't call Jesus Lord just to guarantee you a future home in heaven but so that you can follow in his footsteps in the here and now. You're called to be on an earthly mission that keeps you in heavenly growth mode for the rest of your life. Does that describe us? Is that you? Can you identify with that? So what does it really mean for you to take up your cross 
and follow Jesus. It means you're just dying to live. Do we get it? Are you dying to live this morning? Lord Jesus. It's counterintuitive. Goes against our fleshly will. Holy Savior, by your grace, rescue us for your name's sake and for your kingdom. We bless you for your gracious kindness, for all your forgiveness, for your power to redeem and rescue. We want to walk with you, Lord Jesus. We want to walk in your footsteps. Please be our teacher, our savior, our shepherd. And we ask it in your powerful name.